Today's reading is from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1 to 11. False religion worthless. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all of you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is a temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other's justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave you, I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Lynn. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt, and I'm on the team at St. Michael's. It's really uh, great to be with you. That's a zingy reading, isn't it? Shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we ask that you would have access to our hearts and minds this morning. And I ask that you would not leave me to my own ideas or resources and that you would come and speak into our lives in the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, you'd be hard-pressed to find a subject which provokes more passion than the subject of justice. Whether it's uh, Black Lives Matter, or Me Too, or climate injustice. And part of the reason I think that we care so much about justice is because of how it feels when justice is not being served. When the powerful abuse their position and hurt other people, it provokes us, doesn't it? When evil dictators corruptly stay in power indefinitely, slowly killing off or imprisoning their opponents, it provokes us. Well, the Bible repeatedly teaches that God is a God of justice, from the Old Testament right the way through to Revelation in the New Testament, we are repeatedly taught that God is a God of justice. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham cries out and says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Or in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, it speaks of God, the judge of all. And Jesus Christ himself said, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted what? Has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And Paul the Apostle says, 
that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So scripture is absolutely saturated with the theme of God's justice. And that's why the title for today's message is Why a God of Justice is Good News for Us. Why a God of Justice is Good News for Us. Now, for a bit of context, the reading that we just heard is called the Temple Sermon. And it, was one of the most, it is one of the most famous passages in the book of Jeremiah. And what's going on is that God has told Jeremiah to warn God's people that they're living in a way that is completely contrary to his purposes. They're worshipping idols, it says. It says that they're stealing, murdering, committing adultery, perjury, um, verse 9. And that if they don't repent, that is, if they don't change their ways to trust and obey God, that God's judgment is coming. And that judgment will come in the form of uh, foreign armies who will destroy Jerusalem and take the people into exile. And so what we've got here in Jeremiah chapter 7 is Jeremiah, as it were, standing in the gap and pleading with his people to turn back to God in order to avoid that catastrophe. So why is a God of justice good news? The first reason that I see in this text is because it means that God is committed to our transformation, that God is committed to our transformation. So in verse three, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. An alternative way of translating it could be reform your way of life. And the scale of transformation that God wants to do among his people is pretty seismic, isn't it? It covers every area of life. Uh, It covers how they live, verse 5. How they treat the most vulnerable in society, verse 6. It covers their relationships in verse 9. But perhaps most strikingly, it covers their worship. So at the end of verse 6, it says, If you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place. Or halfway through verse nine, will you burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe. Now it might sound kind of unthinkable that the true worship of God could be lined up right alongside the worship of idols. And yet that's exactly what has happened. And because God is a God of justice, he says that only a total transformation of their lives will be sufficient to deal with the extent of the problem. And so Jeremiah says, reform your ways and your actions. Now the prospect of transformation can sound exciting, it's change, but it can also be painful. And C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford um, scholar, described it like this. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. And he says, God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. 
What on earth is he up to? Lewis goes on, the explanation is that he is building a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. And it's a bit like that in this reading. And it says that a God of justice is good news for us because it means that God is absolutely committed to our transformation, even when that transformation might feel at times too drastic or even too painful. I doubt very much that a caterpillar can fully understand its destiny to be a butterfly when it's locked up in that cocoon, struggling and pushing and growing. I imagine it hurts. And in a similar way, God is committed to transforming us to be like Jesus. But where I wonder is the Holy Spirit saying to you today, I want you to reform that area of your life. I I want to change that area of your life. And the challenging thing about this passage is that it's teaching that we can come to church on Sunday, we can say all the right things while Um, actually denying Christ in other areas of our lives during the week. And I feel that struggle and that battle within myself all the time. It might be, you know, singing loud on Sunday, but then falling straight back into gossip and toxic office politics during the week. It might be being kind and patient with everyone in your life, except your family when you get home. It might be knowing all the right answers at home group, but then secretly watching something that you know you shouldn't late at night. But God is so gracious. He doesn't just give up on his people despite the mess of the situation. He sends a message. And it's a message of transformation. As verse one puts it, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. These aren't Jeremiah's own ideas. God has tasked him with this message. And God still does that. He's here today with the same message of verse 3. Reform your ways and your actions. Not, to be clear, because we can obey our way into God's forgiveness. Jesus had to shed his blood on the cross in order to pay the penalty for our sins. That's not what I'm saying. No, it's because a changed life always follows a changed heart. A person who is genuinely forgiven will always live differently. Why is a God of justice good news? Because it means that God is committed to our transformation. And let's follow his leading today and let's surrender to him whatever he brings to the surface. And the second reason that a God of justice is good news is because it means that God is utterly worthy of our trust. I wonder if you've ever experienced the horrible realization that someone lied to you. Uh, Maybe someone betrayed you in some way or didn't have your back or didn't do what they promised that they would do. It's an awful feeling. And the, the witness declaration in court says this, I swear by almighty God that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth 
the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Well, that might be true in the witness box, but it is always true of God. And because God is a God of justice, God does not and will not lie ever. And that is exceptionally good news for us. In the context of this passage, he says in verse 4, Um, Do not trust in deceptive words. Another translation I'm told could be, do not trust in um, the lie. And uh, this lie is leading the people to get a false sense of security in in that context from the temple. And it's why we get that threefold repetition. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Basically, they're saying the temple means... They think the temple means that Jerusalem is always going to be safe from invading armies. And God, speaking through Jeremiah, says that is a lie. And what's challenging here is that God's people were on to a half-truth. God had promised to them an eternal dynasty from King David onwards. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel. And that this dynasty would be based around Jerusalem and around the temple. But slowly, what has happened over time is that the people have fallen into a kind of lazy confidence that because of these promises, God, as it were, um, owes them protection. They've got God in their back pocket. Instead of kind of gratefully receiving the promise, they're now using that very promise as an excuse to live in explicit disobedience to God, all the while maintaining a religious ceremonial facade in order to hide their deeper problems and God challenges them and says hey that promise of protection was actually dependent on the people living in obedience to him that was the deal being faithful to him and that to live in open disobedience to God while treating the temple as some kind of uh, magic protection does not work in fact God goes on to say, if you don't turn back to me, I'll remove that protection. And tragically, that's what happens in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, The people ignore Jeremiah's warnings, and foreign armies come and destroy Jerusalem and take the people into a long exile. So this is not um, alternative facts, as Trump puts it, or my truth, as Oprah puts it, No, this is the piercing eyes of God's holiness exposing what's really going on among his people. And the verdict is that a total change of heart, total transformation will be necessary. It's a bit like, um, I I was quite a rebellious teenager growing up, it may surprise you to know. And um, in a previous life, my friends and I uh, used to go and smoke behind the bike sheds at school And I used to desperately try to cover up um, the obvious smell of smoke before I got home so that my dad um, wouldn't find out. And so I would absolutely cover myself in deodorant uh, to try to hide from my dad that I'd been smoking. It never worked, and we would regularly have these sorts of exchanges where my dad would say, um, where my dad would see through my pretense, and he would say, Matt, have you been smoking? And I would absolutely lie through my teeth and say, no, I haven't been smoking. I absolutely promise you I haven't been smoking. Uh, One time he even jokingly threatened to change my legal name to, wait for it, Norris Blacklung. 
if I didn't stop smoking. But the older I've got, the more I realized that what my dad actually wanted was for me to drop the pretense and to just be honest with him. I realized that what my dad really wanted was my heart. And that's, in a way, what this reading is saying. God is saying to his people, I want your heart. I want you to be real. I want you to be honest. I want you to let me speak the truth to you, to transform you from the inside out. It's like he says, I'm interested in how you actually live your life, with your family, in the office, in the school, how you spend your money. I'm interested in your heart. In verse 6, he goes on to say he's interested in how we interact with the vulnerable and weakest in society. He says, um, if you do not oppress the foreigner, says Jeremiah, the fatherless um, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, then I will let you live in this place. It's teaching that part of the way God measures a heart that's been put right with him is by how we treat the weakest and the most vulnerable people around us. In Jeremiah's culture, it was the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow who would have been at greatest risk of exploitation from richer, more powerful people. And it's teaching this, that God watches how we relate to people with less power and agency than us very carefully indeed. And he does so because how we treat vulnerable people is actually a reflection of the degree to which we know him. So just think of the example of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. It says that Jesus did not count equality with God. Think of that. Equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing in order that he could save desperately lost and perishing people like you and me. Well, if God did that for us, you can see why God has a problem if we treat vulnerable or weak people with contempt given the helpless state we were in when Jesus saved us. It's quite pertinent, isn't it? Bullying has been in the news recently. I don't think anyone goes into leadership with the aim of being a bully. For those of us who are in positions of authority or leadership, it is worth humbly reflecting on that question. How do the people who work for me experience me? And especially those at the bottom of the financial food chain, as it were. Do I show an interest in them? Do I show honor and respect to them? Or can it be that I'm dismissive or impatient or harsh? But it's clear God cares about this stuff. And I feel so challenged by what Jeremiah is saying here. Because he's saying that how we treat vulnerable people shows the extent to which we've really grasped God's justice. Another example that comes to mind is the racism and rejection that the Windrush generation faced when they tried joining UK churches. And how th that's another example, I think, a modern example of what Jeremiah is talking about, how the church can be complicit in injustice. But why is a God of justice good news? Because it means that God is committed to our transformation it means that God is utterly worthy of our trust. He never lies. And finally, it means that God is guaranteed to be victorious. That God is guaranteed to be victorious. 
There's that phrase, isn't there? History is written by the victor. And that can often be the case in life in quite a sad and intensely frustrating way. So often the powerful do get to write history. So often the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So often those who least deserve it get to live in security and completely unaccountable power. So often evil seems to flourish. But we have this incredibly powerful word in Jeremiah in which God tells us four crucial words in verse 11. I have been watching. I have been watching. It's teaching that nobody gets away with anything ultimately. And actually as Christians, we can say history is written by the victor and not in a depressing way because that victor is Jesus Christ. And in the end and through Christ, God will have the decisive and final victory over evil. But only God has the power and the authority to dispatch justice perfectly. It's a bit like I could wander up the road to London, Victoria, to John Lewis's headquarters, and maybe I could try getting into the building. And who knows, maybe if I'm lucky, I could even get into the foyer, and I could try giving out tasks. I could try telling the staff what to do, couldn't I? But it wouldn't work. However, if Nish Kankiwala was to walk into the John Lewis headquarters, he would be able to do that. Because he's the chief executive of John Lewis. And only Jesus Christ has the authority to judge. Only Jesus is guaranteed to be Victorious, And when we know that, it changes everything. It enables us to say, as Romans 12, 9 puts it, he says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay. And one of the reasons a God of justice is such good news is because it can empower genuine forgiveness. It can empower genuine forgiveness because God's justice will have the final word in the end. And that has the potential to set us free from a prison of bitterness and hatred. To know that God will act and do what is right. This is less about forgive and forget and more about forgive and follow. Because we know that he will be victorious in the end. So it seems to me as I, as, I, as I finish that the only appropriate question, if God really is the God of justice that I've been talking about, and he is, the question is this, are we ready to meet him? Are we ready to meet his son, Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ stands at the end of life's road for everyone without exception. And scripture teaches that we can either stand before God with our sins forgiven or with our sins unforgiven. And that to meet Jesus with our sins unforgiven will be more awful than words can express. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is the phrase Jesus uses to describe life outside of God's love and grace. Because God is a God of justice. But a God who holds out to us 
this amazing grace to be able to get right with him, to live with him as our savior and our friend. And that can be for the first time or for the thousandth time. And in the greatest display of justice ever witnessed by human eyes, Jesus Christ, try to wrap your head around this, Jesus Christ willingly surrendered himself to the Father's justice. And he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was dying in our place, bearing the penalty that our sins deserve, which is death. And he did it so that we could know grace, forgiveness, eternal life, overflowing joy, hope in suffering, strength to face our trials. And the reassurance that because he did all of that, that there's now, Romans 8, chapter 1, no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What incredible justice. What amazing grace. What an amazing God we worship. Let's pray. As Father, we ask that you would help us to remember and to live in the light of that truth that you're a God of justice. We thank you, Lord, that you're in the business of not superficial change, but deep and lasting transformation. And we ask that you would do that in the areas where we know we're holding on to things that are not good, that are not of you. That by your Holy Spirit, you would help, you would help us to let go of those things, to put them to death. And Lord, we ask that you, your, that reality of your judgment would not lead us to fear, but in a kind of slavish way, but to humility. That we would live deeply aware that any good that we have and all of the good things we enjoy are only because Jesus paid the price for us. We thank you so much that he did that. And we stand in that grace today. In Jesus' name, amen.